Welcome to our Clothed with the Sun daily podcast. Today we are celebrating Good Friday, one of the holiest days of the entire year. So today we will do a portion of the gospel reading due to the very long reading of the Passion that usually takes place on Good Friday, and we'll do a brief meditation afterward. I am James Thomas. Today is Friday, April 7th, 2023. As I said, it's Good Friday. Most blessed Triduum to everyone. So here is a little portion of the Gospel according to St. John. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four shares, a share for each soldier. They also took his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top down. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it but cast lots for it to see whose it will be. In order that the passage of Scripture might be fulfilled that says, They divided my garments among them, and for my vesture they cast lots. This is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary of Magdala. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. After this, aware that everything was now finished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. There was a vessel filled with common wine. So they put a sponge soaked in wine on a sprig of hyssop and put it up to his mouth. When Jesus had taken the wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he handed over the Spirit. There's so much to meditate on with regard to Jesus' passion, with regard to the mysteries of this week. As I was saying, this is one of the most important days, if not the most important day. I think Most people agree Easter is a little bit more important because Easter is the triumph. Easter is the victory. But still there is a victory that happens on Good Friday, and that is the victory over our sins. Jesus paid the price for our sins. Our fallen humanity finally says yes to God. It finally pays the price for sin in the form of the God-man, Jesus, being crucified for us. We've said no to the Lord time and time again, and even if we could die for our own sins, we would fail at it. Jesus said yes to the Father, even in this most difficult task. Jesus could take away our sins, and he did take away our sins. He said yes, and he didn't fail. Of course, the most definitive moment in Jesus' redemption, I mean, there's so many definitive moments, but... The moment where Jesus makes the choice is a very, very important moment, and that's in the Garden of Gethsemane. In a way, that's where our salvation happens, because he gives over the will. Our wills have been broken. We've broken them. We've we've given them over to sin. We've said no to the Lord. He's had the best of plans for us, and we've ruined those plans. We've gone in other directions. We thought we knew better. We reached out our hand to grab the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead of waiting for the Lord to give us all good things in in his time, as he desired. And so the God-man, Jesus Christ, said yes to the Father in a garden. 
just as Adam had said no to God in a garden. Eve said no to God in a garden, just as the new Eve, Mary, in the opposite way that the new Eve, Mary, said yes to God. She didn't do this in a garden. She did it, however, with an angel, just as the old, the first Eve said yes to an evil angel. Mary said yes to the good angel, saying that she would bear the Savior. So we have a new Eve who sets the way, sets the path for the new Adam, just as Eve Eventually, I mean, we don't want to blame more one person more than the other. But yes, you know, Eve initiated it, Adam completed it. Mary initiates it in a way. It was initiated through the angel, etc. But Mary said yes, and then Jesus completes it now with his yes. So Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done to the Father. Even after he had said, Father, take this cup away from me. So Jesus goes to the cross. He endures the most horrible passion. This past week, we've been talking about some of the details of this, some of the meaning of all of it. On Good Friday, I like to focus on Jesus's final seven words, final seven sayings, rather, from the cross. There's a number of different things that he says, and to do a study of these, to do a meditation on these, really helps us to understand the meaning of Jesus's passion, the meaning of Jesus, his mission, everything that he did. It's all summed up in what Jesus says from the cross. Imagine the agony he must have been going through, and yet he had the wherewithal to say things from the cross that would complete his teaching, that would give us great consolation. Things like, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Things like, Amen, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. So in John's gospel, we have three of those sayings. We have, I thirst which has a tremendous depth of meaning. We have behold your mother, behold your son, which has a tremendous depth of meaning. And I I love to talk about those last words of Jesus with regard to Mary and John, because we believe, Catholics believe that this is where Jesus definitively gave Mary to his disciples through John. Behold your mother. There's a lot of other reasons we take Mary as our mother and Mary as our chief intercessor before the Lord. So many different reasons. I hear objections to this, yet there's so many reasons for it. I heard somebody saying recently, well, you know, those Catholics think that God and Jesus are just such horrible people that you have to go to somebody who's nicer. Well, I mean, obviously, there's no one more loving than God, right? God is love. God is the source of love. But I'll tell you this, I know so many people with daddy issues, so many people that struggle in their relationship with Jesus. And I mean, and this is where theology, the body comes in, the need for mothering, the need for fathering. We need to be both both mothered and fathered. And so, you know, that's part of the equation there. There's so many other things. Jesus, I mean, even just with the Jewish laws, Jewish rules, uh, the mother had to be left to somebody if the son dying was uh, capable of doing so. There, there weren't any other children. Otherwise, that would have been automatic for those that say Jesus had brothers and sisters. Well, you know, that's another whole issue, maybe for another day, about the meaning of the words and everything. But yeah, Jesus couldn't have had other siblings for Jesus to say, you know, to John, there is your mother. To, to Mary, to, you know, in regard to John, there is your son. But no, Jesus shares everything with us. Jesus becomes our brother. He forms the body of Christ. 
Anyway, there's so many different things that we could say, and there's also so much that we can say, not just about Mary's motherhood. There's the motherhood of Jesus, the motherhood then of the church, but there's also Mary being the first disciple. When there's two different scenes in the gospel, they say, your mother and your brothers are outside, and another scene, they say, blessed is the womb that bore you, the breast that nursed you, and Jesus essentially says, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Uh, Those who hear my word and follow it, they are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. Well, guess what? Mary does all those things, too. So this is why Pope John Paul, in his letter, Redemptorus Mater, 1987, talking about Our Lady, says, uh, you know, traditionally, Mary's motherhood has been seen as the greatest attribute of Mary, Mary's motherhood of Jesus and all that's contained therein. It's very, very important. The reasons for the Immaculate Conception are very much connected to Mary's motherhood. Jesus needed the perfect mother. If he's going to empty of himself of his divinity, he needs parents that are going to form him right. So he makes his own mother to be perfect. Uh, but it's even more than that. It's, according to Pope John Paul, her greatest attribute is, well, it goes back to that passage of Jesus saying, you know, those who hear the word of God and follow it are my brother, my sister, my mother, etc. So Mary is the primary disciple. Mary is the number one disciple. Mary follows Jesus to the cross. Mary, as I mean, any mother listening to this is going to be able to relate that if your child, heaven forbid, what I'm about to say, heaven forbid, this would ever happen. But if your child was being tortured in front of you, if your child was being nailed to a cross in front of you, whipped within inches of his or her life in front of you, skin being ripped off the body, etc., thorns in the head, etc., you would feel that pain too. We know mothers and their deep love and their deep empathy that they have for their children and how that never dies. So Mary is there with Jesus. Mary is the perfect disciples. The apostles ran and fled, except John, however. But even John fled at first. He came back later. Mary Magdalene stays there with Jesus at the foot of the cross. And Mary Magdalene's suffering, I'm sure, is extremely great. And the other women that were there that were faithful to Jesus, the other men that were there that followed Jesus closely. Lots of suffering there, but Mary is his mother. So Mary knows the pain that Jesus suffered. She felt the pain. She was one with him in her mind and in her heart. And being that she is the Immaculate Conception, yes, there's a sensitivity between the two of them that would be very similar to what was happening between Adam and Eve before the fall, the deep connection of hearts, the deep uh, level of communication that the rest of us are not capable of because of sin, because of so many things that get in the way. So Jesus and Mary have this connection. Mary is there at the foot of the cross. She is enduring it all. Mary is not the Savior, of course, but Mary endures a type of passion. That's why we call her the Lady of Sorrows, the Mother of Sorrows. She's there with Jesus, and she she feels that pain as well. So there's so much we can say about Mary. And in the book of Revelation, when it talks about the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars upon her head, wailing aloud in birth, in in giving birth to her son, her son that would be the Messiah. We say this refers to Mary giving birth to all of us at the foot of the cross. Mary has labor pains for the church. 
at the foot of the cross. People say, no, that's an image of the church. Well, it is too, but Mary's the preeminent member of the church. These all, all these things go together. It clearly is Mary in the book of Revelation with the crown on her head, queen of heaven. It clearly is her because there's a reference there to Psalm 2, which is a reference to the Messiah that he would rule the nations with a rod of iron. It says this woman is going to be the mother of the one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron, and she is a queen. And in Old Testament times, the queen was not the wife of the king. It was the mother of the king. And so Psalm, I forget, I think it's Psalm 48. I got to do it. <laughs> so many things to remember sometimes. But one of the Psalms talks about how the Messiah would have a queen. And it's not his wife we're talking about. And Jesus didn't have a wife anyway. So anyway, all these things come together. And so it's only right that Jesus should say to us, behold, your mother. And the church has always understood that being a crucial moment for us receiving Mary as our mother. And she suffers to, as, as each of us is given spiritual birth, Mary mothers us into this in so many different ways. And her prayers for us, well, for those that don't understand that, I mean, we pray for each other. It doesn't mean God is bad because, you know, we're, we can't just go to him 100% we, and not pray for each other. No, we pray for each other all the time. It's a good thing. We're the body of Christ. We're the church, right? So we pray for each other. <clears throat> we support each other. We love each other. We help each other. We don't say, well, I don't want to have anything to do with you because I'm just going to Jesus. No, Jesus set it up. God set it up that we would be a human family, a church family. And so his mother's part of that family. He's not going to exclude his mother. So all these things come together. Anyway, finally, Jesus says, it is finished in the reading I just read in English. In the Latin, it says consummatum est. I don't know the original Greek words, but they Latin is properly translated from the Greek consummatum est. It doesn't mean it is finished. Like, okay, it's over now. That's not what it means. I don't know why we have such poor translations in English sometimes with certain parts of the Bible, depending which Bible you read as well. But Jesus says from the cross, I guess people just don't understand what it means, so we don't want to challenge them to think more deeply. But Jesus says as he's dying on the cross, it is consummated. It is consummated. What is he talking about? The word consummate, that refers to a marriage. That refers to man and wife becoming one. Jesus said it is consummated. He's referring to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. It started, well, part of this started Holy Thursday, giving us his body and his blood as the new Passover, a banquet. All this goes back to the original Passover, where the people are being delivered from evil. The people are being delivered from slavery. There is blood protecting the children of Israel, the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is now the Lamb of God, and his blood protects us from the evil one. His blood washes away our sins. So all these things come together. The wedding banquet of the Lamb, we believe, is the Eucharist. It's fully realized and achieved in heaven, but it also begins here on earth. And we believe the Eucharist makes present the death of Jesus. His It makes him present, but it makes primarily his passion, his death, his resurrection present, the Paschal mystery. So when the priest holds up the host at mass, he's holding up Jesus on the cross, primarily. He's holding up all of Jesus, but it's it's the sacrifice of Jesus. It's his body offered for us. It's his blood shed for us. 
It is consummated. As Jesus dies, he has now succeeded in paying the price for our sins, and therefore heaven and earth can be reunited. And this is why the veil in the temple is ripped in two during the earthquake and all the other natural disasters happening at the time Jesus dies on the cross. There's speculation in with Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, why is Caiaphas crying when the temple is shaken up and, and the veil is ripped in two? Is it because he realizes what he's done? Some people speculate that. I don't know that that's the case, though, because he's still going to persecute Christians later. But he's certainly upset when he sees what's happened to the temple and the fact that the Holy of Holies is no longer covered. That's not supposed to happen. And is this a sign from God that something is wrong here? Well, you can sure bet God is saying something in that temple veil being ripped in half. God is saying, I no longer want separation to be there between you and me, my my people, my children, and myself. There's no longer a need for separation. The veil has been torn because heaven and earth have been united. They're first united in the incarnation, but fully united when Jesus pays the price for our sins. Now God and the human race can be one. The Bible speaks of the wedding banquet of the Lamb from beginning to end. Genesis is all about marriage. Revelation is all about marriage, the marriage of God and his people. The works of the prophets, they speak of the marriage between God and his people. We have been unfaithful, and so God is going to try to win us back. And then in Jesus's words, so many of Jesus's parables, I think there's 10 different spots where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet. I I believe it's 10 different places where Jesus describes heaven and our relationship with God as a wedding. He compares the two. And we know there's different parables regarding weddings and uh, this is it's it's all about us and God becoming one. So Jesus is preparing us for that, and and even that passage where they say, "Okay, this woman she had all these different husbands; they all died. Whose wife will she be?" And Jesus says, "You don't understand. In heaven, we will be like angels. There will be no marriage. There will be no human earthly marriage in heaven. We will be like angels. In other words." We will be married to God. We will be part of the wedding banquet of the Lamb, our souls wedded to the bridegroom, we each taking our part most fully as the bride, each of us. So when Jesus says it is consummated, he's talking about the consummation of the marriage. It can all come together. We can be one with our Lord now, with our Savior. Another interesting point about this is the word apocalypse. The book of Revelation is also known as the Apocalypse. We hear Apocalypse and we think end of the world. We think of some really cool movies. But the word Apocalypse, going back to the Hebrew, going back to the Greek, it actually refers to the consummation of the marriage. That's what the book of Revelation is all about, God and and humanity becoming one. The Apocalypse is part of the wedding ceremony where there's a special tent for the married couple. And after they've had the religious ceremonies and they've eaten and they've danced and they've done all the different things that are part of the ritual, then they go into the tent together to consummate the marriage and everyone else continues to party and dance and have a good time. And that's known as the apocalypse. So Jesus on the cross is acknowledging this. It is consummated in himself, especially in his death, He brings together heaven and earth. Our faith is such a beautiful thing. 
knowing our faith just, uh, for me at least, it helps me to love it more and more and to want to know about it more and be part of it more. So this is the great love our Lord has for us. He's the bridegroom. He's the savior. He's the knight in shining armor. I mean, Revelation is such an awesome book to read, and it talks about our Lord being, you know, the rider of a white horse, and he comes to conquer. There's so many beautiful images. This is what our Lord is for us. And we're going to get into these images more in the next couple of days, talking about Easter, that Jesus has come to rescue us. We belong to him. He's now come to save us from Satan. And a big part of what he does to save us is he sacrifices himself. And he suffers a great deal so that we now, we might have little crosses to bear, but they're nothing compared to what he's taken on. And they save us from the ultimate pain, which is an eternity in hell. So anyway, my prayers will continue for all of you as we go through the tree to him. God bless you. I hope you uh, draw closer to the Lord and that he consoles your heart and draws you closer to him during this time. And we'll be back again soon. God bless. Have a good day.